Welcome to In Step with your hosts, Dr. Mike Martaccio and Deacon Jerry White. In Step is a podcast where we walk alongside the shepherds and ministers who walk alongside us here in the Diocese of Charleston. Today, we're blessed to have Father Dwight Longnecker, pastor of Our Lady the Rosary in Greenville. Welcome, Father Longnecker. Thank you. We're really glad to have you here. First, how long have you been a priest in their diocese? I was ordained in 2006, so you work it out. We'll, we'll do the math, yes. <laughs> how long have you been at Our Lady Rosary? Um, just about ten and a half years. <clears throat> when somebody asks you to describe Our Lady of the Rosary, what, what comes to your mind? Well, Our Lady of the Rosary was uh, founded in the south part of Greenville uh, in the early 1950s when uh, a good number of um, people were working at the Donaldson Air Force Base, which is close by, which was, this was just after, of course, the Second World War, and the baby boom, lots of young families living here. And so the Catholic families got together and bought a little property here uh, and um, got a priest to come in and start saying Mass. And from that little house where they met to say Mass, they then built a school and a gym. And the building that was going to be the gym was where they were going to worship for the, for the time being. Fifty years later, when I came here, they were still worshiping in that warehouse-type building. So um, that was the background of the parish, founded very much by the Catholic, local Catholic families themselves. Uh, they built a school, and it was very much a local parish. Um, it's actually, after St. Anth- Mary's, the oldest parish in Greenville. Hmm. Um, St. Anthony's was established first, but it remained a mission, a mission church for um, longer, and therefore um, we qualify as the second oldest parish. <laughs> so you have a really interesting background. You uh, weren't always Catholic, and of course you weren't always a priest. Um, you were brought up as an evangelical and even a graduate of uh, Bob Jones University here in Greenville. Um, and how how'd you end up how'd you end up here? Well, that's a, um, an interesting story, um, <clears throat> if I do say so myself. I was born up in Pennsylvania in a very evangelical fundamentalist family, and um, me and my brothers and sisters all came to Bob Jones University. So we first came to South Carolina. This would have been in the, in the 1970s when um, I went to college. And um, it was while I was there that I became an Anglican, became interested in England and English literature and the Anglican Church. Uh, and felt the call to the ministry and was actually um, baptized and confirmed into the Anglican Church. There was a little breakaway from the Episcopal Church here in Greenville that we were allowed to go to. So I went there with some of my friends and was baptized, um, confirmed as an Anglican and also felt the call to the Anglican ministry. But I wanted to do that in England. I I had been to England a couple of times and fell in love with the place. So when the opportunity came after college to study theology uh, in England, um, I jumped at the chance and went over to study theology in Oxford to prepare for the Anglican ministry in the Church of England, in England. Uh, that all happened, and um, I then went on to serve for 15 years in the Church of England as an Anglican priest before uh, my fa- I and my family came into the um, Catholic Church in 1995. So, you and your family, so you, you're married. Yeah, I have a wife and we have four children, yes. So we're, 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 I'm one of the very few married uh, Catholic priests. I think um, the special provision that was made for us by Pope John Paul II in the um, early 1980s 
was actually pioneered by a priest of this diocese, um, Father Parker. Really? Was one of the, um, Father James Parker was one of the very first um, former Anglicans, former Episcopalians to be ordained as a Catholic priest, although he was married. Um, and uh, when that was then expanded to England in the, in the late 1980s, early 1990s by Pope Benedict, uh, I came into, I was able to therefore apply for um, to be ordained as a Catholic priest. It's handled on a case-by-case basis, and my case was put to Bishop Baker um, around the year 2000, and um, about five or six years later, the right job came up and it all transpired for us to move back here to Greenville, South Carolina to be ordained as a Catholic priest. And I'll tell you, um, in the late 1970s, when I was a student at Bob Jones, if you ever would have told me that I was, first of all, going to come back to Greenville, South Carolina, I would have said, not in no way, but to come back as a Catholic priest would have been a real shocker. So I want to, there's so, there's so much there that, right. that, that, uh, that I want to discuss. Um, uh, but, but before we get too far away from the, the, the actual conversion part of your, your story, right. what was that, what was that thought process like that, that led you, um, um, first of all, from uh, from uh, the evangelical background to Anglicanism, and then and then to Roman Catholicism, and and also how um, how has that those those influences uh, stuck with you? Right. Um, good questions. First of all, when I was at Bob Jones, I met um, a Catholic laywoman who um, was a Benedictine oblate, and I went to do yard work for her as a student, and we a friendship struck up. And uh, her name was June Reynolds, and her daughter was the mother superior of the Poor Clare Convent here in town. And so I got to know both her and Sister Mary Lucy, her, her daughter. Uh, and their Catholic witness was just very simple, but very profound. And I, I, of course, as an evangelical, I had met one, lots of wonderful Christian people, but I'd never met any Catholics for whom the faith was really um, genuine and heartfelt um, and quite normal. There was a normalcy about them and an ordinariness about them which was um, wind very winning and yet they obviously took their faith very seriously. So that moves me in a, to be um, feel positive towards Catholics and not to have the anti-Catholic bias that was at Bob Jones and in yeah. the American South generally. Um, and G.K. Chesterton said once a person starts being fair to the Catholic Church it's not long before they're attracted to it. And that was the case for me. So as I went over to study in England, I was becoming much more Catholic in my understanding of the church and the sacraments within the Anglican church. Um, so this process, um, I became an Anglican, then I became an Anglo-Catholic within the Anglican church. And it right. was only a, a small step then to actually say, well, let's become Catholic. Well, that sort of leads to the more personal side um, because you didn't become... You weren't just an England priest, a minister, and then all of a sudden you're a Catholic priest. There was a period of time there where you really had to take a leap of faith and your family had to come along with you. Um, well, when we um, came into the Catholic Church in the early 1990s, the Church of England was going through the upheaval of the decision of whether to ordain women as priests or not. And um, this brought me to the point of... I've always tried to be very open-minded, and so I was listening to both sides of the question. And the whole Church of England was debating this, from the bishops down to the lay people in every parish. And the people who were in favor of having women as ordained as priests actually had some very good arguments. And I listened to their side, and I realized they had good arguments. 
they were good Christian people. They really believed the Holy Spirit was leading the church to have women priests. But then there was the other side, who were also good people who had very good arguments not to have women priests. That therefore made me say, well, who makes the call? And this is, to my mind, the big Protestant problem. When good Christian people disagree sincerely and really believe that the Bible supports their point of view and the Holy Spirit is leading their point of view, who makes the call? And that leads me back to the Catholic Church and the question of authority. And the Catholic Church doesn't just have the Pope, but has a, a global and a historic sense of authority, which is much deeper and much um, more um, powerful if you like, in helping to make that call. Have you noticed um, a, a, uh, um, a, a difference in how we disagree within the Catholic Church than, um, than maybe how that plays out? in? in yeah, again, that's a really good question. When I came into the Catholic Church, um, a couple of Catholic priests said, oh, you know, we're just as divided as the Anglicans are about all these things. And I said, that's not true. I said, deep down, there is an agreement between Catholics that does not exist in, in the Protestant churches um, and the agreement is things like this. I said, and I would say to these priests, I said, so for instance, every Catholic priest understands who the boss is, right? They, they would all have to agree with me. Yeah, it's the bishop and it's the pope. And I said, you all understand what a priest is and what a sacrament is. I said, that's a basic ground of agreement. Even though you might celebrate the sacraments differently and with different styles and so forth, you understand what it is. What it is, and I said, even if you disagree with it, you know what it's supposed to be. I said, there's none of that agreement within the Protestant churches, um, and even within the Anglican churches, none of that agreement. There's disagreement about very basic things, and they had to agree with me. And so, yeah, there's disagreement within the Catholic Church, but it's about, um, well. I would like to think that it's about the superficial things. Unfortunately, the division in the church at the moment seems to be um, about some pretty basic things as well. But again, even there, with the dissidents in the Catholic Church, they know their dissidents and they know what the Catholic teaching is, um, even though they reject it. So what led you along that process from Anglicanism to, to Catholicism, like uh, uh, influential writers, influential um, people? You already mentioned Chesterton, who that, that was... Uh, had a very similar uh, um, process uh, as you. Well, I had a wonderful experience in the summer of 1987. Uh, after I had gone to England, I stayed in touch with June Reynolds, this Catholic lady. We would write back letters back and forth. A letter is a piece of paper that you use with a pen to write oh, on. You know, oh, 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 okay. Then you fold it okay. and you put it in something called an envelope. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we were pen pals, and she told me, she invited me to visit a Benedictine monastery. And so, of course, um, for a boy from the Bob Jones background, the right. Benedictine monastery was a big jump, you know, because the monks and nuns were like the big Catholic secret, you know. Um, but I went along to a Benedictine monastery there in England and loved it. And in the summer of 1987, now this would have been like a good five or six years later, I was by now an Anglican priest, and I did a hitchhiking pilgrimage from England to Jerusalem and stayed in, in Benedictine monasteries all across France and Italy and so forth. And as I went further east, through France and Italy and Greece to the Holy Lands, of course, it was like going back into history, mm -hmm. um, yeah. back into the Middle Ages, then back into the early church, and then back to the Holy Land itself. And of course, as I went on this journey, um, England and Anglicanism was left far behind. 
So you really had to take sort of like a leap of faith and you had to discern. And can you talk about people have to make big life choices, big discernments. Right. Because with the family, and, you know, you were a father at that time and um, a husband and, you know, suddenly you're, you're, you're no longer an Anglican priest. You're, I, I really believe, um, Deacon Jerry, that um, in our Christian pilgrimage, each one of us, sooner or later, in one way or another, the Lord will confront us with a major decision, uh, a major decision of faith. Now, it'll be major for us, which means that for some people, it will mean leaving a particular job, a particular church, um, a particular relationship in which God calls them to make a decision. Mm -hmm. um, for others, the decision might be comparatively small, but for them, it's big. Right. Um, and <clears throat> for me, one of the major ones was responding to God's call to be a priest um, and to go to England in the first place. Right. Uh, and to leave behind my evangelical home and my family and that whole world. Um, but then the second big one was um, to leave the Anglican Church and the career and the home and everything that I loved to step out into the void and become a Catholic. And as you've said, at that point I was married with two young children. I hadn't trained for any other career. And it was by no means a foregone conclusion that I would be a Catholic priest. Um, the whole process had to move forward step by step uh, with a bishop who was willing to sponsor you and send your paperwork to Rome and get the dispensation from the vow of celibacy in order to enable and to retrain as a Catholic priest. So um, <clears throat> I spent 10 years in England as a layman, um, not being ordained as a Catholic priest and working for a small Catholic charity and beginning to do some writing, which I'd always wanted to do. What does that discernment process look like? I mean... I mean, how, how would you tell somebody that, that comes to you and say, Father, I have this big um, life event that I have to discern about what God has called me to do. What would you say to them? Well, I, I would say, first of all, um, if someone says God spoke to me, we generally consider them to be, you know, a little bit crazy. Um, you, what do you have, a hotline to heaven? Well, no, but I believe God really does speak to us. and. Um, I've had very clear experiences where God has spoken to me very clearly, in not audibly, but in in the in the in my heart and in my mind. And you could say, well, it's all in your imagination. I can remember in there's a great line in I think um, George Bernard Shaw's play about uh, uh, Joan of Arc, where they're questioning Joan of Arc, and the Inquisitor say to her, Joan, Joan, all these uh, visions are all in your imagination, and she says. But of course they are. How else would God communicate with me except through my imagination? Hmm. Which is a great answer. Yeah. And I think um, God does speak to us. One thing that happened to me, for instance, was after I was a Catholic priest and working for this little Catholic charity, um, after I was an Anglican priest and was working for this little Catholic charity, um, I'd become a Catholic. Um, I wanted to be a Catholic priest, but the door was not opening. And so after waiting about five or six years, I said to the Lord uh, one time in prayer, what am I supposed to be doing? I'm supposed to be a priest. What am I supposed to be doing? And the answer is clear as, clear as day came back saying, do what, keep doing what you're doing, hmm. which was to be a husband and a father. Um, and so I said to the Lord, no, what do you really want me to do? Because I wasn't happy with the answer. <laughs> yeah. and, he, and he said, um, 
keep doing what you're doing. So I said, well, what do you really want me to do? And he said, I've already told you twice, just keep doing what you're doing. And that was exactly the right answer at the time, although it wasn't what I wanted to hear. So I would say, first of all, believe that God will speak to you and learn to listen to that voice. And the way the voice becomes clearer is by being obedient to it. So when you hear the first voice for the first time, you actually o obey it. It's all there in that beautiful story of the boy Samuel in the right. temple in the Old Testament when God calls him and Eli says, go back and, and say, here I am, Lord, send me. Um, and so if you respond in obedience, the voice will become clearer and you'll be able to um, uh, obey more clearly the next time. Also, in the rule of St. Benedict, St. Benedict says that the monk must learn obedience to the abbot so that when the Lord calls him he will be able to respond with obedience and the principle there is that if we are not obeying the voices that we already have <clears throat> within scripture within our natural ties of obedience to our religious superior or to our parents or to our authorities over us if we're already not living a life of obedience then we will not be able to understand obedience to the Lord's call when it comes so these are all aspects of discernment that I would put into place as sort of um, foundation elements of being able to discern a call. So if you're, if you, and sometimes I will say to young men, I, I speak to a lot, the Lord seems to bring me a certain number of young men in their 20s who seem to be drifting. Mm -hmm. And I'll say to them, guys, take six months and figure out what God wants you to do. I said, if you're a Catholic young man, then either it's the priesthood or to be a husband and father for the vast majority of guys. If it's to be a husband and father, then listen for the Lord's voice. And the next thing you ask him is, show me the right woman. And make this a vocation and a decision. Don't just drift. And um, happily, I've seen one or two guys actually take those advice and that advice, and, and they're, they're now where they need to be. Would you say that that, um, that period of time, you said that was about 10 years, mm -hmm. um, that that period of time um, has... Uh, looking back, strengthened both of your um, uh, vocations, both as a, as a husband and father and as a priest? Oh, absolutely. One of the things that I, I did when I was doing that 10 years was I began writing. And um, I have a pretty wide audience now, but that's because I've been doing it for t over 20 years. And those 10 years um, were, were actually fruitful. I can remember at the time being dissatisfied with my lot. Um, and <clears throat> we were able to have a nice house in England and I didn't have enough room for my study. So I built, I had a shed built in, in the, in the yard and, um, that ret I retreated down there to my, to my study to do my writing. Yeah. And, um, I was complaining one time to a friend and he said, so hang on here. He said, so you have a part-time job in which you are the, um, your own boss, um, which brings in enough to pay the basic bills for your family, he says, and um, then 75% of your time is spent being devoted to writing in your shed in the, in the yard. He said, you do realize that there are a huge number of people who do anything to have a life like yours. <laughs> so I stopped complaining at that point. <laughs> what, what do you love about being a priest? Uh, I think I love the... Um, the freedom that comes with being a priest. And a, a lot of people say, what freedom is that? Um, and it's the freedom to actually serve God and serve other people, which is what our basic, everyone's basic vocation is if you wanted to baptized, But to do so as your, um, uh, both your vocation and your avocation, 
um, and to, and to do that and to actually to use crude language to have, pick, make a living of it um, is 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 a wonderful freedom. What do you love about being um, a married man? My family. <laughs> that's a that's a who, not a what question. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, and yes, I, I do feel tremendously blessed in be able to in being able to have a, a wonderfully loving and supporting wife and, and family. Um, and it makes me realize and respect all the more the uh, great um, sacrifices which our celibate men make. And I know that most of them would say, you know, it's not about sex, they would say. It's about, you know, the fact that the sadness that I will never have children, yeah. never have a family. So how do you think that plays in? I mean, I'm sure our listeners would want to know, you're, you're a married Catholic priest and you have children. How come we don't have... How come the church doesn't say, "Okay, let's anybody could be married and be a be a priest"? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think um, first of all, it's not up to me to um, to to really have a strong opinion about this, or to certainly not to to um, be campaigning for married priests. Right. So I want to make it clear that I don't. I support the church's discipline, yeah. um, and I don't campaign for married priests. I have thought a lot about it over the years, of course, and um, <clears throat> I think a lot of it comes down to practicalities. Um, and for every good argument in favor of married priests, I can come up with an equal one against married priests and vice versa. For every argument against, I can think of a good argument for. So I think on balance, from a practical point of view, and when I say practical, I mean what about um, the... Uh, question of time devoted to the to the priesthood, the question of finance, who's going to pay for these priests and so forth. I think in all of those ways, um, it's just about an even, pro, the pros and cons are just about even. Um, I think I would say about the whole decision that we have to remember that the Catholic Church makes, makes decisions on a global consideration. I think here in the United States, for instance, um, having more married men ordained would work probably work pretty well because um, in most places um, America is affluent enough to be able to support these men. However, when you look at Asia or Africa or areas where the church is under persecution, you would have to ask, uh, is it really fair to ask a married man and to be a, to be a priest if he is going to face, he and his family are going to face persecution um, and hardship, immense hardship. Although in saying that, I think of one of my evangelical friends that I went to college with. He wanted to be a missionary to primitive in to primitive tribes, and he his wife did as well. Both of them completed degrees in theology, degrees in linguistics, and went to train in in, in jungle survival. And they went out to the hill tribes of Burma, where they went in and settled with a primitive tribe, living with them, learning a language that had no alphabet, mm, wow. and learning the language by listening to it. Then he began to um, create an alphabet for this, these people. And after that, began to translate the New Testament from Greek into this language wow. that he had created an alphabet for. Wow. And he and his wife, wife he and his wife lived there in a grass hut in the jungle for 
now 30 or 40 years with five children. Now, I've often said, if our Catholic priests had that mentality and their wives had that mentality, then married priests would be no problem. Okay, they would be able to go anywhere and serve the Lord, you know, in tough parishes and, 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 and uh, but unfortunately those kind of people are pretty rare. Right. And, and even in that situation, um, um, and, and even a Deacon Jerry could, could even speak to this, uh, you know, uh, that, that vocational discernment is not just, uh, not just me. That's, that's a, that's a, you know, that's a husband-wife discernment. That's a, that's a family discernment. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's, a, it's a team. So what I'm saying in a short version is if the married man and his wife are working together as a team and are fully supportive, it can be fantastic. However, if it's, if it's not that, yeah. it's disastrous. And um, we know from experience in the Protestant churches, when clergy marriages go bad, they go really bad. Um, it's a scandal to the whole church, it's um, a disaster to the family, and there's all sorts of unseen problems. So, married priest is not a, bu- a magic bullet to the priesthood crisis. So, um, one would say that you and your wife are a team, right? I mean, that's what you're doing as far as support for one another and things like that. Yeah, it is, but we're not a team in as much as she's not... Um, She's not sort of Mrs. Priest. Right. You know, she, she's not at my elbow running all the ladies' Bible studies and so Right. Forth. She's my wife. She's at home. She has her own business, uh, which she's founded, and she contributes to the family income, and, and yeah. she's very supportive of, of me as, and my vocation, but she's not at my elbow the whole time interfering. Well, being, uh, I was a youth minister and newly married, and, and we would have people come up to my wife and say, your husband should do this. Your husband yes. should do that. Um, and, and one day my wife just turned around and said, um, that's not my role. If you have a question about the ministry, you go talk to him about it. Um, does, does your wife have to deal with that? Or is that, I mean, how, how, did, how do you deal with that? <laughs> well, any, any, anyone who knows um, Mrs. Longenecker um, w- w- wouldn't be asking this question. <laughs> <laughs> That's like my, my wife's Irish, so yeah, that yeah. didn't go over too well. She, she's able to stand up for herself yeah. and, 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 yeah. and, and correct things pretty pretty quickly. So that's, yeah. and that's all right. That's great. What what do you what is things the hardest thing about being a priest? Not necessarily being a married priest, but but being what's what's the hardest thing you think being a priest? I think probably the hardest thing about being a priest for me is what a lot of um, people would say who are in a caring profession, and that is that you get compassion fatigue. Um, I sometimes half joking they say I'm I'm exhausted at trying to be Jesus, Mary, and Joseph twenty four seven. The demands and the expectations of the priests are very high, um, and very very unrealistic very often. And um, do you have like to be on all the time, basically, like when you're around people, you, you have to, you know, I was talking to the bishop about this and, and the bishop, you know, he has to every time he goes, you know, they're looking the way he looks, the way he talks, if he smiles at something, if he doesn't. And, and so I would think being a, a pastor that's the same thing. People read you and say, oh, he's thinking that and, it is. And this is this is one of the greatest aspects of the married priesthood that, that your your wife if she's the right sort of woman um, is able to be a sounding board and correct you and and listen to you and 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 
help you a bit. And she'll say sometimes, you have to remember that everything you say is you're, you're, you're shouting. In other words, everything you say is amplified because yeah. of the role that you have. And uh, yeah, I can see that with the bishop. We're, we're kind of like minor celebrities. You know, everybody's watching and um, everybody's listening. And one false step can get you into trouble. A lot of letters written. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's well known that you uh, love to write. And you mentioned that, uh, that you sort of picked up that, uh, um, that vocation uh, during that 10-year that, that period. And you've written all sorts of things, books, plays. Um, and uh, you really have a sizable following on your blog. Um, so what do you like to write about? And um, is there a dream project that, uh, that you want? Yeah, I started, I started writing um, the blog when we returned to the States. Blogs were new back in 2005, 2006. Right. And I just started this blog because it was, seemed to be a, a, something fun and to, to write some things that I couldn't get published elsewhere, either because they were no good or because they were not for the right audience or whatever. So I just, it was, it was kind of like I'd always wanted to have a weekly editorial column, and here was an opportunity to have one yeah. right there. And then I, I realized people were starting to read it, and it started to snowball. And yeah. um, so I began realizing that it was quite a significant voice. I mean, to be able to write and have an instant global audience the transformation in media with blogs and, and, and social media and podcasts and so forth is enormous. And um, I'm glad you're making these podcasts because we need to be using these, these tools the best we can. How has that um, particularly changed your view of, um, of not only your ministry, but how ministry in general works or, or ought to work? Well, a good writer always has his, his eye to um, his audience and aware of whose audience is and is writing for his audience, not necessarily to please his audience, but certainly to, to speak their language. Um, and the blog has helped me to continue to try to, to do that and to communicate in an effective way to people um, in a way that they can actually hear and listen. C.S. Lewis is a great inspiration for me in that respect. He's very good at taking com complex ideas and expressing them in simple language. Absolutely. About the special project? Yeah, yeah. Um, Magnus Opus. Or... Well, my background in, in at, um, college was in speech and drama, and I've always had um, a kind of gift for voices, to be able to um, hear voices and write dialogues. So I'm working in a couple of drama projects, which I'd really like to... I'd really like to see come to fruition. The problem with a big project is that um, I get I'm, I get bogged down in in, this, in the right. in, in the middle. It's difficult <laughs> to finish them. Yeah. Well, in the beginning, you talked about um, the the birth of this parish and how it came to fruition, um, and 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 how when you came, you, it still was really basically the same thing. But now you have a new church out there um, on on the property, and, and it's. You're not a contractor. You're not a. You're not a um, engineer. How did you go about putting this all together and, and having the vision for where you wanted to go? Well, when Bishop Guglielmoni asked me to come to Our Lady of the Rosary, I had been chaplain at St. Joseph's Catholic School, which is just about half a mile up the road here, and I got the impression when he asked me to come here that it was a quiet little parish, and I would just need to turn up and say mass th twice on the weekend. Um, <clears throat> After I was appointed, the first meeting was with some parents from the school who said, our school's in trouble, you need to save it. Um, and the second meeting was with one of the laymen in the church who said, I'm the, member, I'm the chairman of the building committee, we're building a new church, you need to build it. 
So <laughs> it, it soon became obvious no. that the parish that the bishop sent me to was not actually a, a quiet little place. That Do you feel lied to? No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. No one said it explicitly, but that's the kind of feeling. Um, so we got busy um, with the idea of building a church, and the, the people were enthusiastic. There was a, a, a problem in the, the last 50, for the last 50 years, every priest who came here was going to build a new church. Right. Um, and so when we began the fundraising, some of the older members were saying, like, yeah, we've heard this before, you know, I'll, I'll give you my check when the bulldozers arrive kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so we had to get over that, and we eventually um, were able to do so. I worked with a fantastic building committee. Um, the chairman was Paul Bricko, who's an aeronautical engineer. And so, um, you know, if you're an aeronautical engineer, you have to make sure that every nut and bolt work right. so the airplane comes down you know so he was very much a line-by-line -line detail guy and um he handled all of the paperwork and all the contracts and did all the diocesan stuff and and went to all the meetings and kept all the files and everything yeah. and was just fantastic um which allowed me to <clears throat> sort of dream the dream and envision the thing and, and inspire the whole project which which um that's probably what i'm better at and so the parish was uh, has a new new church, but then there's something new coming on um, that you're expanding your your school here. The school that you were going to close that was going to close now now it's you're looking at expanding. Talk, talk a little also bit about that. Taking a different uh, approach with the school as well. Yeah, we the school was a really traditional um, parochial school, but over the years most of our families had either grown up or moved away. And so most of our families now drive into the parish from elsewhere. And the school, therefore, was suffering from low uh, declining enrollment, as a lot of Catholic schools are. And so uh, with a new uh, headmaster coming on board a couple of years ago, we decided to shift over to a classical Catholic curriculum. And this classical curriculum uh, begins uh, really in the early st grades, in grades one, and moves right up through. And to complete it, you need to have a, an upper school. So um, we had permission from the diocese to add grades 9, 10, 11, and 12. And we did that two years ago now. And so next year, we'll, be start, we'll have our first 11th grade um, in the upper school. And it's not... Um, we call it an upper school, not a high school, right. because it's not a typical American high school, you know, with a marching band and Friday night football and the Broadway musical and all that as extracurriculars. It remains small. We're never going to have more than about 20 kids in each year group. So it's small, it's family-centered, it's parish-centered, and it's got a very strong, very strong Catholic classical ethos. So we're pleased What does that mean that. when you say that? Just well, so explain it to people. First of all, that our Catholic faith is the... It really is um, predominant in the school, not just adding prayers to a secular curriculum, but integrated into every aspect. Mm -hmm. And the classical aspect is that it's um, focusing on the great books and the great Western traditions of Western civilization, going back to the, to the Greeks and Romans. So the students do learn Latin. Um, and it's structured in such a way that by the time they get to high school, they will have understood the whole, really deeply, the whole structure of West, the history of Western civilization so that um, by the time they're in 12th grade, we hope they're emerging from the school really understanding why our civilization is in crisis and why it is where it is and what the answer is. 
mm-hmm. and that um, the answer is the Catholic faith and a, a deep Catholic culture. You're at kind of an early stage in that uh, in that shift. You're kind of in in the process of that shift. Have you seen um, um, uh, Have you seen any of the of the fruits of that? In, in yeah, in we're the seeing some really we're seeing some really exciting things happen at the moment. Where yeah. we're having inquiries from people from all over the country about what we're doing here and actually moving their families here to be part of this community. Mm. So we've had families move in from Oregon and Washington and California, Georgia, Texas, North Carolina, um, and not just Catholics. We've last, last year we had two um, Protestant families learn about what we're doing here and move, no, move here, put their kids in the school and join RCIA. Wow. Yeah. So it's, have you seen a, uh, um, uh, a, uh, a cultural shift within the, within the community because of that uh, that classical emphasis. I think we're finding um, more of a uh, commitment amongst our school families, um, and we're finding a shift into um, some of the families had their kids in Catholic school because that's what our family always did, kind of thing, and now we're finding a genuine intentionality here where families are saying we want this kind of we not only want Catholic education we want this kind of Catholic education and this kind of parish for our family the, the big question for those who work in the church right now and and even parishioners is because of COVID you know the question is are people going to return um, already we know at least one in five um, have already they're, they're, they're the nuns they're the ones who are not coming back um, how do you think, how, how should the church respond, maybe in how as, as your parish, as you guys are coming out of COVID, um, you know, with all the strings attached to it, how are you responding to that, and as a parish responding? Well, we've always, uh, under, under my leadership here, I've always seen the Catholic parish as being, as ideally being a microcosm of the whole church, doing effectively what the whole church should be doing in the world and our focus has been on two basic ministries our school and our work with the needy here in this part of Greenville um, our socioeconomic demographic here in, in at Our Lady of the Rosary Parish is actually the poorest in Greenville we have residential poverty in the housing all around us and then we have um, residential poverty in the rural part of the parish on the other side of Interstate 85 where some of the conditions of housing and uh, unemployment are just shocking. I've been in some of the homes there and they're just, the homes were better when I went on mission to El Salvador, you know, I mean really, really bad. Um, And then we have a a very strong element of transient poverty. Um, People forget that being right on an interstate like this, not only do the, do the trucks go up and down, but people go up and down. Mm-hmm. And so um, we have a lot of people wash up here who are transients, um, staying in the old hotels around here, which have turned into kind of homeless hostels. Um, so we, started, we bought one of the pro- properties adjacent to our campus a few years ago and turned it into Mother Teresa House, wow. which is a referral center for the poor. We managed to find a, a salary for the director and we don't offer a lot of direct help, but he networks with all of the other caring agencies in Greenville. And um, when people come, he listens to their situation and tries to direct them to get the help they need. So 
we believe in this way um, through the school and through our parish worship and our liturgy um, and through our um, social outreach we're doing what the church should be doing um, as a local community and I believe that's the answer to actually on whether people will come back if they feel that it's worth coming back they'll come back but as far as just turning up to do their Catholic duty and fulfill their obligation to be honest if those kind of Catholics don't come back okay they have to make a choice I would rather have um, five people here who want to be here and be involved than 50 people who are just punching their time clock. Strong words. Would you say that's... Um, uh, uh, are you seeing that uh, uh, play out? Just sort of that that's the... Uh, those people who, who are uh, invigorated are still around? Well, we're not finding it here so much. Um, one of the things my wife observed about Our Lady of the Rosary, especially when we didn't have such a beautiful new church, was she said, think about Our Lady of the Rosary, she said, because it's in this bad part of town and, and our, our buildings and facilities were pretty humble. She said, anybody who's here is here because they want to be here. Ah, yeah, yeah. Because she said, they're not going for the fine liturgy or the beautiful building or the whatever else. Um, and, so, and she was right about that. And so we have not... We have not seen um, a real problem. The problem we have is um, people asking um, when, are we, when can we open up the church again fully mm. so that we can actually get to church. Right. Yeah. So we have, we have trouble with fitting them all in, actually. There you go. Yeah. That's good. So when your earthly journey comes to, uh, to, comes to a close, what do, you, what do you hope people will say about uh, Father Dwight Longnecker? What will they say? What do you hope they'll say? <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, I hope they might say, you know, he wasn't as grumpy as he appeared. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be good on your tombstone, right? <laughs> well, we, um, we do what we call is a speed round. And it's a one-minute speed round where we're just going to throw something at you and Ask for a quick reply, okay? So here we go. Favorite type of music genre? You know, I like gospel music. Okay. Yeah. Favorite dinner? Steak and french fries. <laughs> Favorite piece of artwork? Probably the frescoes in San Marc's convent in Florence by Fra Angelico. Favorite TV show? Columbo. <laughs> uh, a lot of people won't know what that is, but yes. Uh, favorite subject in high school? Goofing off. <laughs> favorite color? Green. Favorite saint? Therese of Lisieux. Favorite drink? Manhattan. Favorite vacation spot? Italy. Dog or cat person or neither? Dog. Favorite scripture? Psalm 
Psalm 27. Favorite time of history. Fourteenth century. Favorite book? Besides the Bible, we'll let you off on that. Besides the Bible. T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. Mountain or beach? Mountain. Favorite place to eat? Favorite place to eat? The back deck. Okay. If you were not a priest, what would you be doing now? An advertising executive. <laughs> Father Dwight Lockmacher, we are so appreciative of you um, taking this time, and we're very appreciative of your ministry and what you do here, and um, and just the changes that are coming here, and and willing to try new things. That's that's neat, and so we're just thankful, very thankful for you. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you, Father Longenacker. Thanks all of you. Um, and we'll see you next time on the InStep podcast where we walk alongside those who walk alongside us. God bless you all.